Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are not financial advisors. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or a recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome in. This is the Fundamental Analysis Show, our Thursday episode. Uh, we're talking Airbnb today, a fun one, uh, probably one of the hottest stocks on the market right now, um, but we're going to dig into the company. Uh, we understand, you know, the valuation is pushing a billion to, or a hundred billion dollars. So people might be all, you know, all right, well, when do we, what do we do about this thing? But we'll get to that at the end. But first we got to talk about seven investing. And I thought uh, for the next few episodes, maybe we could highlight just one of the analysts each time because there's seven of them there. And if you don't know anything about them, this, you know, we could talk about one, you know, for the next seven episodes. What do you think, Ryan? Sure. I didn't see this coming. So but, uh, yeah, about? I guess well, we can talk the the head guy, the head honcho, Simon. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's really good at looking at the deep tech companies. Um, Big time. You know, yeah, really good at understanding these technologies that a lot of investors don't understand, these business models. Um, he kind of, he's really good at getting in companies early um, before the market will catch on. Um, similar to Beth Kindig in that way. You've probably mm-hmm. heard her talk on our show before um, and you've seen her in general. Anything else with Simon? Yeah, yeah, he, he doesn't really follow the crowd. Um, nope. And he does stuff that I would not consider. Like, um, for sometimes, sometimes valuation will just cancel something for me, mm-hmm. which is probably a bad thing, you know, a bad trait to have. But uh, he came on and pitched Snowflake and made a decent case uh, for one of our shows. And uh, yeah, that was when everybody was saying, look how overvalued it is. So Yeah, he did say that sometimes when people say, you know, the consensus is something's overvalued. He's like, all right, maybe people are just disregarding this for no reason. I'm going to take a look. But, you know, to get his access, to get his insights um, and his picks each month, uh, you can sign up with our code CCM at checkout and get $10 off. So your first month is only seven bucks. Really easy to try out the service and you can help out the show by doing it. But we're going to kick things off now with the show. Airbnb. So, Ryan, do you want to get into it, the history of the company? Yeah. Well, I'll start with what they do. And Airbnb, I, I have a feeling most people already know what they do, but they're a global marketplace that allows hosts to provide guests uh, with stays or even experiences as well. But their big goal is to own travel. So, they they built this off the stays uh, part of their business. The experiences is kind of new. That's one of their new avenues for growth. But I'll explain the hosting part for anyone who doesn't know. If you have an extra room or a basement or something in your house, you can basically take pictures of that area, set a nightly price, and post it on Airbnb. Then guests will, I don't know, uh, search throughout Airbnb in a certain location. If they like your place, they can pick it and they can stay. So really, it's just giving you a chance to get income off these extra rooms and it's giving them a place to stay. It feels a little bit like subleasing on demand kind of thing. Uh, because you can pick how long you want to stay too. Uh, and then obviously there's, you know, short term stays, one night, that kind of thing. And then there's longer term stays. Uh, but basically, uh, they've, their entire business was built off the hosts initially. And now it's kind of almost gotten out of hand sometimes because I know there's a lot of people out there who will mortgage, take out a mortgage on different properties just to rent out a bunch of rooms on Airbnb, which seems risky um, to me at least. Uh, so there are, I mean, people have built entire businesses off of Airbnb where they just buy homes and rent them out. 
Yeah, we saw that in March. Uh, yeah. A lot of people got into trouble with that. Um, you know, long-term leases, short-term rentals. That's how we work out in trouble. I mean, a lot of these people aren't levering up like they did. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of how the business model has gone for people that are trying to go and be professional Airbnbers. Yeah, and some property managers won't let you Airbnb room, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm not mistaken. But then uh, Airbnb now has more than 4 million hosts around the world in more than 220 countries. Interesting note, uh, it's not really that important, but uh, 55% of the hosts are women. So, Oh, interesting. Just an extra, you know, a little difference between men and women there. Not very much, but I don't know. Slight difference, yeah. Would you have guessed that it was more women than men? Uh, I would have thought it would be 50-50, but I know 55%, it's not that big of a difference, but it's definitely interesting. Uh, as for the guests in 2019, there were 54 million active bookers worldwide. I'll get into the history though. Airbnb was initially founded in 2007 by Brian Chesky, who is now the CEO, Joe Jebia, and Nathan Blacharzik. Blacharzik, I think. Yeah, he's supposed to be the uh, expert coder. They said he's like 10 engineers in one, which is probably the really? best compliment you can give to someone like that. Interesting. And Brian and Joe were roommates initially in San Francisco. Uh, and so as most people know, rent in San Francisco is not that cheap. And so they were trying to look for ways to generate some extra income to pay for rent. And that weekend, there was actually a big design conference. I'm sure a lot of people have heard this story, uh, but there was a big design conference in San Francisco. So they inflated three air mattresses, created a quick website and connected with three people that were looking for a stay. Um and yeah, apparently it worked out and they were like, wow, this could really be something here. And so they brought on Nate or uh, Nathan in 2008, uh, who was a software engineer at the time. Now he's the chief strategy officer and they started to really build it out. Uh, and keep in mind, this is around the same time as Uber was being founded. I think Uber was 2009, but the sharing economy was sort of in its infancy. Um, and they got Y Combinator funding. That's uh, Paul Graham's big business, right? I mean, yeah, it's like the right? startup incubator. Um, it's, you know, in Silicon Valley, the show when uh, they make fun of the incubator. This is like the real incubator yeah. that actually works. Like Dropbox was there, other companies like this. And so they got enough funding to go to New York and try to garner interest and get people on the platform. And by 2009, they had 10,000 users. Uh, and then the VC money started pouring in. I, I don't have all the teams or the venture I mean, capitalists. I mean, as you can guess, Founders Fund, Sequoia was early. Sequoia, uh, Anderson Horowitz, all those names. Everything was going really well for them until last year with COVID when they really started to see hard times in order to survive. They had to fire a quarter of their workforce. This, I think we talked about this on one of our shows. Yep. And uh, they, had, they acquired a new funding round in debt to shore up the balance sheet. Uh, since then, things have pretty much turned around for them. But Prior to the IPO, the three founders owned about 44% of the voting power. So, and each of them had, I think it was 15, 15, and, or 14, 14, yeah, they, and then Brian had a little more. They, um, ke- they kept a lot of the ownership. It's very interesting. Usually it's down below like 5% or so for, you know, these founders or maybe even a little below 10. Yeah. And then the only other really significant player with a big stake was Sequoia Capital, who had 16.5%. I guess the only reason to pay attention to that is when the lockup expires, see what happens with their shares. Uh, that's it about for the history. What about valuation? Yeah. So as everyone knows, uh, it's, it was a really hot IPO. What was it? Like a month and a half ago now. Enterprise value is now at $102 billion according according to Coifin. Ticker is ABNB. Uh, <laughs> good ticker, I guess. It sounds like you're saying, saying a Airbnb, but as a baby. 
I'm trading at 21 times 2019 sales. And I'm saying 2019 because 2020 was a really off year. I mean, at one point in March and April, I believe they had negative revenue because similar to booking.com for all the refunds people had. Um, And 2020 will definitely be a higher multiple because of the pandemic. Uh, Shares outstanding haven't ballooned too much pre-IPO. But I know that, you know, post lockup, stuff like that, there's a lot of options that get exercise once the IPO occurs. So, you know, watch out for that. That's typical for any IPO. That's not just specific to Airbnb. Uh, They are unprofitable on a net and cash flow basis right now. So can't really do a multiple there. Obviously, they have no dividend. I think the most important thing for the valuation is just to look at the balance sheet. So at the IPO, before they raised, they had about $3 billion in working capital and about $1.8 billion in long-term debt. But they did raise $3.5 billion in cash at the IPO. So Currently, the balance sheet looks strong, and they're not hemorrhaging money. They've gotten you know close to profitability. Um, I mean, they've been cash flow positive a few times over the last few years here, so it, uh, liquidity is not a concern for them, I would think. Okay, is is that all for yeah, valuation nothing, nothing so far? Else, yeah. uh, I'll get into the earnings, uh, and I just took the full year twenty nineteen numbers, which I know seems lazy, but I didn't want to do all these adjustments and have this long-winded thing for earnings because the numbers have really been skewed yes. all because of COVID. Uh, and so I'm going to look at it almost as if it's normalized. So what I expect the 2021 numbers to look like, kind of, I, th- I hope it'll be a little more normal. Uh, but in 2019, they had revenue of $4.8 billion, up 32% from 2018. They had about 75% gross margins. 500 million in operating losses for 2019. Even though they were profitable in 2018, they just really ramped up sales and marketing, which I thought was a little weird. They spent 34% of revenue on sales and marketing. In 2019, they've obviously toned that back in 2020, which I feel like after a certain point, they don't really need it. Like it's, yeah. you know, they kind of have the brand awareness to not have to spend on like Google ads. Yeah, I, I would like to see me. that percentage of revenue. Uh, for SNM go down over time for sure. Okay, and they spent two percent of revenue on stock-based compensation, pretty low. Pretty low, uh, good. especially good compared to some of these other Silicon Valley companies. Uh, they have two point eight billion in working capital, similar to similar to the three billion number that you pointed out. Four and a half billion in cash and cash equivalents. They have three point two billion in redeemable convertible preferred stock. I forgot to look at the strike price, but I could probably find that. Um, it's probably in the money now. Yeah, well, oh, yeah, I would have to imagine it is. Uh, and then they had 327 million nights booked in 2019. That number grew 31% from 2018. And they generated about 223 million in operating cash flow, 97 million in free cash flow. I think in 2018, they generated like half a billion free cash flow. Yeah, yeah. The 2019 was like they, they went back into investing. I think they were probably trying to boost their numbers, get maybe they had another VC round or something to really like invest back in the business before the IPO. But who knows? Who yeah, knows why it, that happened? It shows uh, if they want to be cash flow positive, they certainly can. Mm-hmm. And they have been. I guess they weren't in 2020 because it was a terrible year. But uh, yeah, I mean, the numbers look strong on a normalized basis. Um, I mean, what do, what do you think will happen in 2021? Uh, it's get interesting. Back to- if, if, if the VC... Uh, sorry, I think I was trying. I knew what you were going yeah, to yeah. ask, but the uh, I think, sorry, the vaccine. I said VC. I think if the vaccine rollout goes strong, you know, everything's all back to, you know, normal, at least in the United States and Europe in, you know, what, late spring. Um, that could have a huge second half of 2021. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a little bit speculative. But again, just looking at it over like a five-year period, I would expect solid growth. I mean, the... I don't know. I mean, you got to weigh it versus the valuation, but uh, I mean, they have minimal competition. Uh, we'll get into it on the second half, but yeah, what do you think? 
you know, 2021. Yeah, I mean, I, I have this grand idea that uh, we've got the roaring 20s ahead of us. <laughs> That's so, what uh, everyone has that, but yeah. But it's all kind of dependent on that vaccine rollout, so we'll mm-hmm, see. Definitely. I mean, right now, the numbers looked good. They, like the, they're getting back to where they were at, but it's not some immense growth from the 2019 numbers. No. So, and I mean, we'll get into the second half here, but the valuation is pricing in a lot of growth. So uh, I think the vaccine, uh, they're going to have to show growth beyond just recouping what they had in 2019. Yep. I agree. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then get to the second half of the show. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? (sighs) All blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. All right, welcome back. Next up is digging trenches. So this is kind of where I think we can have an interesting discussion here. The moat rating, zero, one, two, or three for Airbnb. I'll go first. I think it's about a 2.5. I think it's very strong. Um, so, you know, each, the difference between them, okay, and say something like Uber. Uber is similar, and everyone has this take, where Uber is almost a commodity product, right? I mean, they may have, you know, the more drivers, you know what I mean? And they may provide a good service, but each car is very similar. Airbnb, sure. each location is different. And, you know, everyone that's added is just another unique location on the platform. It's really hard for another service to replicate that. And I think that does give them some sort of a competitive advantage. Yeah. Uh, the business as a whole, I guess it depends what we're rating here. Um, do they have a stranglehold on one night stays? I don't think so. Uh, I and we'll get into that as far as like why what I like or as a product. Um, I don't like one night stays on Airbnb because you might as well get a hotel because the fees yeah. are. You know. It depends what location you're in, but yeah, yeah, one night stays are probably not the best. It's got you know typically like three or four or longer. Yeah, so I would say they're definitely competitive, competitively advantaged. Uh, the other part is the brand, not only recognition but the brand relevance. Not just for the guests, but the hosts. Uh, the hosts know that they need to be on there. If I mean, there there are entire businesses being built on Airbnb. Yes, they definitely have a competitive advantage. Yeah, and I think a number they had in the S one. Now I'm trying to remember the exact one. I might have the percentage wrong, but I think new host signups. So they're just starting out on the platform. Forty percent of the time, I believe they get a booking within like three or four days. Um, either way, whatever numbers it actually is, they get bookings fast. So that, you know, I think that's an advantage as well because they have all that supply in the platform. And as that continues to grow, the moat or competitive advantage, however you want to define it, should grow over time as their supply increases. What are you looking at for further reading? Okay. So the big, you know, the big knock on Airbnb is the bad experiences, misuse of the platform, uh, faking reviews, stuff like that, right? Yeah. Uh, You've had personal experience with that. I, I luckily haven't had any of that, uh, but I know it is common. Um, you know, I want to kind of try to dig into how often our reviews fake, how often our locations, you know, not actually what they seem to be online. That's a tough answer to find like an exact one, but yeah. more as a digging, maybe people have done studies or 
I mean, I don't know what, maybe you could look at their net promoter score, stuff like that. I'll give some anecdotal evidence. Their net promoter score is a 74, which is pretty good. That's good. Uh, yeah. But when I, I had a long stay this summer and I'm usually not the type of person to write a bad review about things. I know people are going to be like, wow, he's a bad review writer. <laughs> no, no, Ryan's not. He's not. But, uh. I had a pretty bad stay, and so I wrote a bad review, and the guy didn't take very good care of the house, and I had to be there for two months, so you know you really start to figure out the ins and outs of the house. Um, and I wrote a bad review, and then he just came back and wrote like a lie bad review about me. He's like, yeah. all the other people in the house hated him. I was like, I was pretty good friends with the people in the house, and they didn't seem to hate me. I'm like, there's nothing to stop him. There's nothing to stop a host from just basically backhanding you uh, if you write a bad review. So. I don't know. I guess no. That's it's important because I think uh, from what I was reading. So I read, uh, or I'm in the process of reading the Airbnb story, and it kind of chronicles of how they got to where they are now. You know what good choices they made, what you know um, hurdles they've had to come over along the way, and they said they've really catered to the host and kind of been like, all right, we're host first. They're not going to pay very many fees. You know, we're going to put most of the fees onto the. Um, the user, which we all know, those extra fees, it comes into like, you know, a 15% bump usually. Yeah. Uh, but the, the problem with that is that if you cater to the host, you you don't really, you know, lay down the law on them or you don't regulate them at all. Then something like, you know, what you happen occurred and then now you, you know, don't have Airbnb in the, the same light that you once had, right? Yeah, I, I really don't. I've had like some good stays, but I've definitely had my fair share of bad stays and it just... The, the problem is, you know, some people like the difference between your stays. Like they, they like having a differentiated experience. If you have a bad differentiated experience, it just makes you want to go to a hotel because you know what you're getting, uh, yeah. especially for the shorter stays. But uh, my further reading, I'm looking at uh, basic – I could probably just look this up. But I'd like to know how often the people that book stays actually use the experiences feature because that is sort of an avenue for growth. And I think I've never low. once used it. I think it's pretty low. Yeah, I can't imagine that it's that big. And it honestly seemed like a weird next step yeah. for Airbnb. I would have expected them to go a different direction. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, maybe if it ends up being a niche product, they may have wasted a bit of marketing spend. It doesn't ruin it for them. Uh, but they have said that this is their big growth opportunity. And I kind of think like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if this is as big as you, you want it to be. I know in, like, in Europe and stuff, it's nice to tour the cities, but... You do that on your own. You do that on your own. Yeah, I mean, there's tours and stuff that you can get that are really easy. Like, if you show up in downtown, whatever, you know, you just get that one person that's doing the tour of all the stuff and you pay them. I don't know why you'd have to go through Airbnb. It doesn't seem like that improves the experience that much, but who knows, you know, could work. Yeah, it seems like a very niche crowd. What are you looking at for future growth opportunities? Yeah, there, there's a lot for them. Uh, and mainly it's like add-ons to the, the standard product. So one I have is the travel credit card, uh, Chesky, who is the CEO and founder. Uh, he mentioned this on a podcast this spring. He said it had to be put on the back burner because of the layoffs, right? They had like, I think he said they had like six to 12 big initiatives they're hoping to get out in 2020. Yeah. Uh, but they had to push those off to 2021, 2022. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's the reason that the travel card, I think would be important is because it gets you to, you know, get on Airbnb or choose Airbnb over a VRBO or others. So I'm guessing it would give cash back on something like Airbnb trips or possibly bundling with transportation. This isn't revolutionary. A lot of people do this. There's already tons of travel cards out there, 
But I really like the idea because if someone, you know, with lots of disposable income and is like 30 years old, you know, if, if I was someone like that, uh, I definitely would be getting into that. I would love to have that card, especially if I was going to go travel to a few other places. I mean, it seems worth it. And then it locks you into always using Airbnbs. Yeah, it makes the switching costs high. Uh, I'm sure they'll probably eventually bring that back. Um, it but- hasn't ever launched. It's just like... No, I mean, yeah. they'll take it off the back burners. Yeah. It feels like if they're going to pull some of those initiatives back on, uh, that'd be one of the early ones that they'd go with. But uh, my my growth opportunity, well, I have for, I have three. So two are just product enhancements, which are just, that's just me as a customer griping. Uh, the first one is you should be required to show your internet speed and then you should be required to verify it. Uh, so they can like check it because I, I had slow Wi-Fi and yeah. it was just a pain in the ass. I saw Chesky. A lot of people have been tweeting about that, um, which guys, come on. I mean, I don't know why. Twitter is not the place for that. Come on. You're just wasting the timeline. But Chesky actually responded to one of them and said, we'll look into it and get it going. So you're that might be solved soon. Great. And then uh, the second one is potentially like a new... You know, if you're ever looking at a home, I think they have this on Zillow, and I think mm-hmm. Josh Wolf backed this technology, but yep. there's the augmented reality thing where you can go through the home and see the whole thing. That'd be a nice feature to embed with Airbnb. Maybe they already have something like that, but uh, right now you're kind of guessing based on pictures, like you're hoping that, yeah. that they're not hiding anything. Maybe, maybe they should have a square foot requirement. I don't know how, you know what I mean? Something yeah. like that. Uh, but anyway, those are just two small product enhancements. And then the other thing I'd say, big growth opportunity would be transportation. That would have been for me the logical next step instead of experiences. No, they said they were going to get into that's that was another one of his growth things. They said they were trying to get into the transportation part. So maybe they launched their own, or maybe they just acquire Turo or Turo whatever, which is like the car sharing service. Um, I mean, if they're out there traveling and everyone knows how much of a pain like uh rentals car rentals are uh i think dan mcmurtry had like a tweet thread about it this this uh week and yeah i've never had like a great car rental experience the car sharing service uh seems like a really logical next step uh if people are already traveling yeah it is interesting they could definitely do a lot with transportation um they probably want to get on it soon uh you know because other companies can kind of step into it we know the hotels are trying to invest in you know, Airbnb is kind of eating some of their market share. They're trying to, you know, invest back now, similar to other companies that have been disrupted by these, you know, Silicon Valley giants yeah. and upstarts, as they call it. But well, let's get into highlights and lowlights. Uh, why don't you go first? Okay, highlights for me, it does not take uh, being all that brilliant to realize the value that Airbnb provides and the product is good. Uh and I think they have a stranglehold on medium-term stays. Like if I was going to stay anywhere for a month or two months, something like that, I'm going to Airbnb because, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to lock into like a one-year lease or anything like that. They're a little more, uh, I guess, the hosts are a little more adaptive to what you might need. Um, and the hotel rooms are just, I mean, hotel rooms are great for a few nights, but when you, have too the kitchen, when you have the kitchen, it's too expensive. And if you have a kitchen and stuff, I mean, it's fantastic. Wait. Yeah, I mean, you want a real house if you're going to stay for too long. Uh, but the lowlights for me, uh, not that important, but I personally haven't enjoyed my stays. Um, <laughs> you gotta, you're, maybe you're just not a good analyst. <laughs> possibly. But, but uh, I mean, you know, that's what it comes when anyone can list, you know. Yeah, and the short-term stays seem really pointless for me. So I guess that's really on the product side. 
the other part is this is a business that fits right into everyone's circle of competence. Like as far as analyzability goes, no one really has a huge edge because everyone understands it. And so that can lead to a premium valuation because there's just a lot more market participants in a company like this. Possibly, possibly. But I think a lot of people understood it. You know, Netflix's business, right? At least like five years ago. I mean, not the long term vision of the business, but yeah. I mean, Uh, right? Because a lot of people just saw it as an aggregator and not something that was uh, building their own great content by the end. I don't see I don't see the inefficiency in Airbnb's business that where I'd have an edge. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I don't know. I think I, I, I mean, mean there's parts of Airbnb's business that you know are different like, uh, that people might not be looking at. I think the long term stays people haven't really been looking at too much. Um, that's a big growth avenue and a few other things, you know. Yeah, uh, but people like I feel like investors. Uh, People understand the long-term stays. The growth that a lot of it is pricing in is stuff that hasn't happened yet, like the you know the travel card or the transportation. Like, yes, if that happens, uh, I did not see that coming, and I was wrong. And maybe there's more ahead, but that's once again an if. That's not anything with the business where there's an inefficiency. Yeah, I mean, the no one can argue that the valuation is premium right now, and it is one of the most talked about companies. It's definitely not under the radar. But I also violated a rule, which is uh, can't say valuation for low light. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. All right, I'll get my highlights. I'm going to keep it very simple. I like the management team. I think yeah. they're very good. To be honest, when I was reading the Airbnb book, uh, Buffett gave them, you know, the the blessing. Uh, he went to Omaha to do a partnership with the Berkshire Annual Meeting, you know, help with the supply and stuff. And he's Chesky, I believe it was him. Talk with Buffett for like four hours. So I, I, and now, now it's now it's an all, all it's got to be an investment now, right? I, I went and looked at your notes, so I saw that you put management. That would have been probably my biggest highlight as well. Like Chesky yeah. seems like a great CEO. Yep, and then the business model is great. I mean, those two combinations. And the fact that they're not egregious with stock-based compensation, I, I like that a lot. And again, violate it. The valuation just comes into play. The lowlights, you know, for me, the fake reviews and the freaking bad experiences. Um, and then the, quote, experiences part that's not the staying, you know, the extra things like cooking, whatever. Sure. I don't think that's not – I don't think it's very promising. Maybe I'll be wrong. Uh, but Chesky also gets, you know, Musk-like RSUs. Uh, restricted stock units, all based on stock price tranches, yeah. uh, which I don't like that at all. But it's kind of what you get nowadays. Maybe so, that's why that. Maybe that's why he made his face during that interview when they're he like, "He knows that table. He's looking up that table. <laughs> he knows what he gets." And they're like, "So you have a hundred billion dollar company?" And he was like, yeah. "Uh, you know." Yeah, it doesn't mean the company's uninvestable whatsoever, but I don't like it. I don't know, but I'm not going to be able to change it. Okay, so more or less interested. Mm, definitely. Well, I I already knew a lot about the business, but say this is the first time we looked at it. Definitely would be more interested in the business. And it's going on our watch list. We're probably going to do some research on it. But I mean, at this valuation, I don't know. I, I would invest at what, like a 50% haircut, something along those lines. You yeah. know, it's at a hundred. I could see them someday generating what, like eight to $10 billion in free cash flow. Yeah. Uh, but right now they're valued at $102 billion. So yeah. what kind of growth are you getting? You're looking at, first of all, they're not out of hard times yet. Like, uh, they're still, it's not uh, clear weather for them from here on out. 
and the vaccine hasn't been widely distributed. And so they are going to have to deal with some of those difficulties around the business. But you're looking at 200 times their greatest annual cash flow, yes. uh, which is I mean, that's definitely not cheap. And I feel like people just, you know, whatever, that's just evaluation. You know, you're too disciplined on that and you're missing out <laughs> on best in breed companies. Best in breed. But it's like price does matter. Uh, and this is a company that I'll probably set a multiple for like myself uh, because they can be cash flow generative and it feels like they're spending money they don't need to, which in the long run might help. Uh, but it shows that they're sort of masking true profitability in my opinion. So I might set a multiple for them. And if they cross that threshold, then I'll buy. But for the time being, like that's a valuation that I just cannot get around. Yeah. Valuation's too much. I mean, uh, we can all see when, that the business model is good, but when the CEO is shocked by the valuation, investors should be too. Yeah, I, and I he knows I mean, he knows the business better than any of us, so he knows what it's really worth. Yeah, I mean, look, the IPOs are all currently right now. I don't want to say the B word, but currently right now, IPOs are popping a hundred percent. I would just be you know be cautious out there, guys. Yeah, and I th- and now I understand why people have that rule of thumb of. Two quarters after an IPO before purchasing something. Wait wait for the lockup period too. Yeah. Wait for the lockup period because there's no doubt in my mind that Sequoia, and rightly so, they've held on to shares for a decade, is going to be dumping their stock. Yeah. And that's not that's not a bad thing. They're just they're going to be selling. They gotta return, you know, the LPs of their fund are waiting for a decade to get this money back. Right. All right. Well, that's gonna do it. Uh, as always, you know, make sure to use our code CCM at checkout. Uh, to get $10 off your first month at 7investing. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you on our next episode.